Leonardo, I am most disappointed in you. You are the eldest of your brothers. I was counting on you to bring order to the chaos of this family. This is why I have forbidden any surface activity. We cannot return to the surface to fight evil if we continue to fight each other. But Master Splinter, how can I be expected to there do so in no excuses when you are the leader, my student. The Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles battle an ancient foe and learn how to fight as a team again. Listen as we chat about CGI rain, unnecessary origin stories, and how to be immortal on the down low. Then we find out if 2007's TMNT stands the test of time. Time. James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says gladiator with the blood Alan says as a father blah blah It's the test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Test of Time podcast. I'm James Brief and joining me as always, my buddy and pal, the director, the guy who puts this and snips it and gets you the perfect chef's kiss (laughs) that you are listening to right now, Alan Noah. That's me. Thank you. Wow, that's a lot of pressure. Jeez. I mean, I hope I live up to that. Well, I mean, it, it's fair to acknowledge that uh, you know, I do half the work of presenting all of this uh, witty banter. But to be fair, you do most of the back work, and I just want to give you credit for it. You, you know, you do the behind-the-scenes stuff. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, but how you doing, James? I'm good. I'm good. I happened to catch the recent uh, Mummy uh, remake. Remake. Uh, you know, it's not whether it's a remake or not. It's just a movie that Universal's made over and over through the years. The one with Tom Cruise, right? The, the Tom Cruise film. Tom Cruise's The Mummy was notoriously the uh, start of. Uh, what was going to be uh, Universal's, what they called the Dark Universe. Right. Universal, they, they had made all these classic uh, films, uh, Dracula and Frankenstein, and it was a notorious flop, you know, right. and rare for Tom Cruise. Um, I actually, I didn't think it was bad. I thought it was well-made. I know exactly where it went wrong. Um, I do think that the scenes with Russell Crowe, he played Dr. Jekyll, and just at one point, it was very like, you know, you know that this was a scene built to just get you excited about your favorite new universe, folks. Right. But it actually was kind of interesting. Uh, Dr. Jekyll is a, is, a, is a fascinating character, you know, like Two-Face, uh, multiple personality. Um in the end, I watched it and I was like, this was okay, but it was the classic uh, mistake that uh, DC and other things had made. Instead of just making a good film to start with, Iron Man alone, it's good. And at the end, go, hey, maybe it's the start of the Avengers at the very last sentence of the, uh, of the post credit scene. This movie seemed to be centered around creating all kinds of Easter eggs and unresolved uh, storylines. And right. it's just a shame because, you know, there's no real backstory to a mummy or, yeah, there's Frankenstein, there's source material. But people don't really know Dracula and Frankenstein. And it's a shame because I think it could have been a real fun franchise had they not executed it wrong. And it's just amazing that, you know, the right steering and a little luck... 
really gets things going correctly. Well, I think a lot of it is what can happen organically, naturally. And look, none of this shit is really particularly natural, right? It's a business. It is going to be forced in one way or not. But yeah, in the aftermath of the huge success of the MCU and every other studio wanting to replicate that and have their own shared cinematic universe, which you understand from a dollars and cents perspective, the thing is you can't force it. And if you try to force it, audiences are smart and they know that you're forcing it and they're just going to be a little wary. And I mean, for every MCU, there's 30 other failed cinematic universes that never really got going because, yeah, exactly like you said, they were forcing it. They were trying to make this thing happen. You can kind of nudge it in that direction, but it has to happen somewhat organically. I agree. And, you know, thinking about what franchises worked and what didn't, you know, you look at something like one of the most successful franchises in history, uh, totally randomly, Fast and the Furious has made 11 films uh, with, with its spinoffs. And, you know, it wasn't meant to be 11 films. Right. And look at the MCU. The second film in the MCU was The Incredible Hulk, which is almost entirely forgotten. I'm talking about the Edward Norton yeah. uh, Incredible Hulk. If that was the first film, maybe the MCU wouldn't have worked. I'm not sure. When you had randomly the Transformers film do well, Hasbro, which owns the rights to Transformers, what did they follow up Transformers with? They followed up with Battleship. Everyone knows that game. And it was another notorious uh, flop. Right. And I remember when I watched it, thinking, why is this movie the story that it is? There's zero backstory to this. I, I remember being shocked. Like, how could you mess this up and just make any good naval film? And you have a competent director, you have a good cast. And similarly, it was just a shame because uh, I thought the monster films could be fun, but they just blew it. And uh, you know, it, it was just you know, a lesson learned for Hollywood. Next time you have a good idea, um, just you know, give it to us organically and we'll tell you what we like and don't. Don't tell us what we like. We'll tell you what we like. I believe, and I'm not 100% sure about this, but I believe that after the Tom Cruise mummy came out, the plan was for them to redo the mummy ride at Universal Studios and then make it more about the Tom Cruise version of the mummy and not the Brendan Fraser version of the mummy. But the Tom Cruise one flopped and I was at Universal earlier this year. It's still like the Brendan Fraser version. There's like, you know, Brendan Fraser on the TV screens, like while you're waiting on the line and everything. And people like it enough. It's fine. I still think at this point in his career with the kind of Brendan Fraser assants we're going through right now and people seem to be rooting for him too. He's a good guy and the guy got a little screwed over in, in oh, a lot very of ways. Much so. Um, yeah, that, that's a that's a understatement. Um, I would bet you that if they could get Rachel Weiss back in, I'll bet you there there's a market for uh, you know almost I don't know if it's quite a Dial of Destiny kind of thing, but certainly a you know an older maybe passing the torch. Uh, I think there would be a market for a fourth Mummy film if they could just make a good story. That's all you need. Just make it kind of scary, kind of fun. That's not an easy task, but. We're willing to watch it, not because it's The Mummy, but because it's a fun film. Right. But let's talk about TMNT. We're talking about this movie because there's a new Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie 
Uh, it's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles colon Mutant Mayhem. I kind of hate that the word mutant is in there twice, but whatever. That's me nitpicking. We talked about the 1990 movie Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles way back in 2017. We were joined by special guest John Willis of the Wayward Willis podcast, but we wanted to talk about something Ninja Turtles related because of this new movie. And then you or I, I forget who thought of it, but we remembered this 2007 movie TMNT. So... For anyone who doesn't remember that movie, it's about the same Ninja Turtles, Leonardo, Michelangelo, Donatello, and Raphael, and it's not an origin story. It takes place several years into their career. They've already defeated Shredder, and now their family is fractured and no longer fighting as a team. Leonardo has left New York for Latin America, Raphael has become a disillusioned solo vigilante named Night Watcher, and both Donatello and Michelangelo are lost without their brothers. When an ancient immortal brings 13 monsters to New York City, the team must come together once again to battle a common enemy and save the city. So this movie came out in 2007. How did it do at the box office? I don't really remember. Well, you know, this is the kind of franchise that almost like Batman, uh, same same time that Batman Begins had reinvigorated the uh, franchise that had died out with the 90s uh, Batman films. Um, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle films from the early 90s, they were uh, they did worse and worse uh, at the box office. The first one was a big hit. First one made like $115 million, for a second one made like $45 million, and the third one made like under $30 million, despite the budgets going higher and higher. So after the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3, the franchise was dead, and that was the uh, live action ones. And the idea was presented that you could make, uh, you know, it's CGI. This is uh, this is not the '90s. You know, Pixar, DreamWorks—they have been doing this. That you can make a Tangent Ninja Turtles film that won't have kind of you know the, the silliness of people in costumes, essentially dressed up as you know six foot turtles. And this was made on a thirty-four million dollar budget and was released on March twenty-third, two thousand seven. It opened at number one with twenty-five million dollars. It actually knocked uh, three hundred from number one, where it had been for two weeks in a row. Um, people were pretty excited for a new Ninja Turtles film. Uh, it wound up with $54 million domestically. So it, this film uh, was fairly successful, and there were talks for uh, sequels. It was supposed to be a trilogy. It was eventually going to lead to the Technodrome and the return of Shredder and all this stuff. And uh, that, that just didn't get made because Nickelodeon took over the uh, rights to the franchise. And they started making some series in the late 2000s, and they didn't want to go in this particular direction. Got it. Okay. I remember when my son Eli was little, he would just put on Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles on Nickelodeon and watch it. And he was just a happy little kid. Okay, so so had you seen this movie before? Yeah, I had randomly seen this film um, in 2007. I found myself in Miami one night. I had nothing to do that night. And and I see a movie theater, and in about 45 minutes was TMNT. And I go, all right, I like the Ninja Turtles. And this is how I spent my night, that night that I randomly had to be in Florida. Um, had you seen this film before? Yeah, I saw it in the theater with Courtney and Nick. Nick of Nick's Marathon. The three of us went to see this movie. I have to assume it was more Nick and my choice than Courtney's, but Courtney went along for the ride and the three of us saw it. I remember that we didn't hate it. I don't know that we were like super excited about it or super into it. Again, I'm 
confident that Nick and I probably liked it more than Courtney did, who was probably just, you know, humoring us to, to go along and see it. And I had not seen it again until the other night. Uh, I watched this movie with Eli because, like I said, he used to love Ninja Turtles when he was little. He is interested in seeing the new movie, Mutant Mayhem. That trailer looks like it's really fun and lighthearted and kind of silly, which is not what this movie is. This movie is very, very dark and serious in tone. And I will fully confess that I have never in my life read a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles comic book. I have heard from other nerds that they are, in fact, pretty dark and serious, which to me, I think is just weird. Not that there's a comic book that is dark and serious in tone, but that they created a dark, serious comic book and named it Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Like, that just screams silliness. It screams camp. And also, you know, the cartoon that I used to watch when I was a kid, it was silly. It was Bebop and Rocksteady and, oh, get them toitles! And, you know, them eating the entire pizza pie in one bite. So... I was kind of thrown by the tone of this movie, even if it is closer to the source material. That's a good point that you bring up, Al, and that's exactly the point of uh, Kevin Eastman, the creator of Ninja Turtles comics. It was supposed to be a satire on uh, Saturday morning cartoons and a lot of ridiculous cartoons that were just stupid. And he was going to make kind of a dark, uh, you know, in the vein of Frank Miller, that, that kind of stuff. I don't know if Frank Miller was necessarily his inspiration, but he was calling it a a ridiculous title, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. The same way that, uh, you know, Deadpool, in the Deadpool films that they did today, one of the side characters they pick is they pick Negasonic Teenage Warhead. It's a ridiculous name and kind of like an angsty teenager character that fits it well. That's exactly what he's going for. And the comics were pretty dark. I had read a couple of them and I found them to be uh, a little too dark from what I was looking for back in the 90s. Okay. Uh, I liked a little more DC uh, uh, Superman stuff uh, at that time. This was uh, the first time we had seen Ninja Turtles in this light. Yeah. And definitely really more of that Raphael is a real kind of, uh, he's kind of an asshole. But that is kind of his character. He's he's a little bit more of a, like a jerk of a... he doesn't say want to be a smiling Michelangelo from the cartoons. Right, right, right. And in this movie, Michelangelo is the comic relief. And he was like the funniest one in the cartoon. At least, at least that's what I remember. And Donatello was, you know, the, the smart one in this movie. He's kind of like, just there. This movie is really focused on the dynamic between Leonardo and Raphael and their clashing and their sibling rivalry and they have a huge fight, you know, in the movie. And none of it's bad. It just, it felt so different for me. And then watching it the other night with Eli, I was like, oh yeah, I forgot how like serious and dark this was. And this is two years after Batman Begins. And Batman Begins was a very dark take on that character. And, you know, there are very, very dark Batman comics. For some people who grew up in the 60s watching Adam West, Batman is like a light, silly character who, like, dances a lot and punches guys and then, you know, says a zany one-liner. 
I bring it up because, look, you can have different tones and do different things with different characters, but it was just kind of jarring to me watching it the other night. I'm like, oh yeah, I forgot just how dark this movie is. This is the kind of film that if you brought your five-year-old to see, thinking it's going to be kind of the, uh, you know, Michelangelo, he's a party dude. You know, it, It's not like that. that. Right. But if you go with the audience that was watching it in the early 90s, we're the same age. So, you know, when we were like 10 years old when we watched it in the early 90s, now we're in our, you know, late 20s, early 30s in the, uh, 2007. So, you know, this whole generation, it, it was kind of almost appropriate. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Like, like the movies had aged up with the audience. But this movie isn't necessarily a sequel to those 1990s movies. And I was thinking about it because a while back, I don't remember which episode it was, but you and I were talking about sequels and requels and legacy sequels and all of these kind of made up terms and, you know, how you draw the line between them. This movie is not those things. It is its own thing. It is a sequel, kind of. And it's a little frustrating to me when movies do this kind of thing, where certain parts of it are, oh yes, this is a sequel to that movie that happened a long time ago. But other things are, yeah, no, forget about all that stuff. A comparable movie that I would say is a Sort of sequel. Can I guess? Sure. I'm going to guess a movie around the time that this film came out. Uh Uh-huh. Superman Returns. Exactly. That's exactly what I was thinking of. And it's a good example, right? Because if you went into Superman Returns and you knew that it was a kind of sort of sequel to Superman 1 and Superman 2, but, you know, maybe you hadn't seen those movies, not like you and I, but, you know, a, a younger person... And then that movie starts with Superman's been gone for five years looking for Krypton. You might assume that, oh, that must be what happens at the end of Superman 2, because you said this movie is a sequel to that. No, no, that is not how Superman 2 ends. Similarly, this movie, TMNT, is kind of sort of a sequel to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 1, 2, and 3, the live action movies. But also kind of not, because this movie starts off with Shredder is dead, which happened in two, not three. And also uh, Leonardo has been sent away to the jungles of Latin America to learn how to be a better leader. Oh, so I guess that's what happened at the end of three, right? Nope, not even a little bit. So it's just confusing. And and the movie starts with VO, which I hate. It's Lawrence Fishburne, who I love. It's a useful reset for the audience, but it's like, well, you're telling me that Shredder's dead. As soon as the the narrator said that, Eli turned to me on the couch and was like, "Oh, was there a movie that came before this?" And it's like, "Well, kind of, kind of yes, kind of no." You know, Lawrence Fishburne should do more voiceover. I thought that this was fantastic. I, I thought the the intro voiceover was great. Um, I took a very different take on the beginning. I think like Superman Returns, it's got nods to it. I don't think you needed to know it was a sequel to one and two, not three and four. I didn't think it was really important that, uh, that, that you didn't know that the films were part of the trilogy. I didn't know that it was part of that universe either. There, there is a scene when I see some of the trophies, but I didn't notice that those were actually specific references to the first three films. Right. And so it didn't matter to me. Um, but I think that this is 
a perfect example of how to introduce a character like this, which is don't give us the origin story. We don't need it. We don't need the origin story of the Ninja Turtles. We don't need the origin story of Batman. We don't need Superman. I can almost guarantee you that we are not getting another uh, Man of Steel-like 45-minute introduction on Krypton in the new uh, James Gunn uh, produced or directed whatever Superman legacy film. It's just going to be almost like uh, the way that Spider-Man Into the Universe was kind of being sarcastic. I mean, it had a point in that particular movie, but they were like, okay, we're telling you for the last time, this is how I became Spider-Man. For all the flaws of uh, Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice, the one thing it didn't need was it didn't need the Batman uh, origin story in the alley where, the, where his parents get shot. Like, right. We know. Right. Uh, so I thought that this was very refreshing. Um, that's fair that you may have been a little confused uh, why was Leonardo in South America. But you know what? Who cares? Like, it, it didn't really matter. Um, I think they're establishing that the the villain in this film is not Shredder. And who's the villain that's not Shredder in Ninja Turtles? I don't know any others. Yeah, I could kind of think uh, there was someone named Be. Stockman. Baxter Stockman. Yeah, I don't remember, but like I remember Shredder. So, and I kind of think this guy was a one-off in, in this movie. I'm not sure if he's a, a guy in the lore, but for me, I, I quickly established like, okay, this is just its own thing. You know who Ninja Turtles are. They're kind of fractured at the moment and let's begin the movie. I'm fine with the fact that they skipped the origin story. I totally agree. We don't need to see the little baby turtles in the ooze. But I do think that they dropped the ball with the explanation of why Leonardo is in the jungle. Because the reason that they give is that Splinter sent him there to become a better leader. And, you know, I get it. This might be a shut up, Alan. You're not supposed to think about this kind of thing. But I'm thinking about it. So they defeated their arch enemy Shredder. That happened previously. Okay, so it seems like, you know, Leonardo did a pretty good job as leader if they defeated their arch enemy, right? And then in order to be a better leader, he is alone? I mean, to be a better leader, don't you need to be leading others? Like, how does he become a better leader in the jungles of Latin America? Uh, that That's fair. That's not explained very well. But for me, I kind of just was like, okay, I don't think Splinter sent him there to be there for years. I think Splinter seemed to have missed his son. I don't think it matters. Not shut up, Alan, don't think about it. It's more like, eh, I didn't think about it. But that's that's not an unfair thing to complain about. And I mean, I, I get it. Like the theme of the family is fractured and these brothers have been divided and now they have to come together. And that also parallels with the villain Winters, who is this 3000 year old guy and all he wants to do is die. And he's trying to free his brothers who are trapped in stone, but they want to be immortal. So the villain and his brothers are fighting just like the Ninja Turtles are fighting. I get it. I get all of that. And having the Ninja Turtles be fractured and fighting, that is fine. That works. I just felt like the way it started was not really clear. And I think, honestly, there's a lot of that stuff that's just not really clear. Like, so when Winters became this immortal god, you know, 3,000 years ago, these 13 monsters were pulled into our dimension. 
okay, that's a little weird, but fine. Don't think about that. But then they say that these monsters have been around this whole time. And then all of a sudden, Winters brings them to New York City somehow. We don't really know how. And these monsters do incredible damage instantly. They are destroying Manhattan. And of course, you know, it's up to the Ninja Turtles and also some of the Foot Clan, too, to to stop these monsters. But like... Are we supposed to understand that these monsters have been running around the world for 3,000 years and no one noticed? You know, I really thought that it was a missed opportunity for them to say, like, uh, it's sort of like how in Batman Begins, this League of Shadows, where they go, you know, the bubonic plague, that was us. The fall of Constantinople, that was us. Right. And it, it was definitely an opportunity for them to say that these monsters have been, uh, you know, Pompeii didn't actually randomly explode. It was the monsters fighting and made the volcano explode. Something that, like, all the catastrophes have been this one mistake that Winters has been, had felt so guilty about unleashing all the plagues that we've seen for millennia, I thought there was a missed opportunity there because, yeah, uh, these things have been dormant for years. Or say that, that they were dormant and now he has awakened them with the nebulizer device or something. It doesn't need to be like fully explained, but it was just confusing. And the first monster that they that they get that we see in the movie looks kind of Bigfoot-like. And so then I was wondering, like, oh, is it supposed to be that, like, this is Bigfoot and he's been around and people have kind of seen him, but this is the guy? Well, no, because the thing about Bigfoot is that no one's ever really seen him. The monster in this movie is, you know, causing a lot of destruction and very easily could have been photographed or taken video of. So that also just kind of threw me on, like, the explanation or lack thereof. You're exactly right. This could have been the abominable snowman, uh, any of those things. Um, One thing I do want to talk about in this film that I, I think is phenomenal is the surprisingly fantastic cast that they have in this film. Patrick Stewart, that guy's got a perfect voice for for this stuff. Like like Lawrence Fishburne, he's great. He's the villain, he's Winters. Or or I'd say rather the antagonist, maybe, uh, rather than the villain. Right, yeah, he's not really a terribly bad guy. That's another thing that I think is not really fleshed out, like who he is and what his motivations are. And it's ambiguous and not in a good way, where he's like a morally gray character who is a bad guy but does good things, or a good guy who's done bad things. It's just, like, confusing. I wish maybe in a sequel or in other lore there was more on this character, because I think he's interesting. One of these immortals that, uh, you know, wants to die. Right. It's a good story. And why his brothers, the the statues, don't want to die is they've only lived a regular life, you know, 30 years or whatever. Right. Um, You know, they've been frozen as rocks for 3,000 years. So to them, they don't understand the curse of immortality. Right. None of us do. But um, the other people that were in this, uh, Kevin Smith is actually, uh, he has a small role. Um, John DiMaggio, um, for people that don't know, he's one of the most famous uh, voiceover artists in history. He's done everything from video games to you know some of the classic uh, cartoons. And do you know his most famous uh, voice that he's done? He's Fry, right? Uh, Bender. He's, oh, okay. Uh, he's Bender. Yeah. So he's Bender from Futurama. Also, they have uh, Mako. Do you know who Mako uh, was? No. 
Uh, Maka was one of the most famous uh, Japanese uh, actors uh, ever. He had done a, uh, a voiceover for a very famous um, series called Avatar, The Last Airbender. Yeah. Uh, he was one of the most beloved characters on that uh, show, Uncle Iro. And he's got that wise splinter voice and it's Mako. It's not someone doing a bad impression. This is how Mako talked. Uncle Iro in The Last Airbender was also the wise sage giving advice to the good guys and bad guys. Mako was was wonderful. And this was his last role, actually, uh, before he died. They announced that he was going to be the voice at Comic-Con and he died literally the next day. Most of his recording was already done. Apparently, someone else did fill in and do like their impression of him. And there are some lines in the movie that are apparently not him, but are this other guy, even though this other person was not credited. According to IMDb. Well, I mean, that that makes sense. Uh, they, they have to fix something. Um, the film is dedicated to Mako. It's a stellar cast, and you don't need professionals, but when you have really good actors in it, you really can tell. I, I will say that I think the character of Winters was, while not fleshed out, Patrick Stewart made it such a better character than I think it, it could have been in the hands of a, a less capable actor. Right, right. The most famous people in the cast, other than Patrick Stewart and Mako, you have Chris Evans, Captain America, former Captain America. He's Casey Jones. And April O'Neil is Sarah Michelle Gellar, who I love from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. But then, like, the voices of the four main characters, the Ninja Turtles, those are not instantly recognizable names. I think they are well-regarded actors in the voiceover community. Um, I could look up their names on IMDb, but they weren't names that I recognized. And in the credits themselves in the movie, it's Patrick Stewart, Mako, Chris Evans, Sarah Michelle Gellar. And then like down, 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 you have the voices of the Ninja Turtles, which is weird considering they are the main characters of the movie. Uh, well, the guy who voices Donatello, uh, Mitchell Whitfield, he was Stan, uh, Stan Rothenstein from My Cousin Vinny, the, the guy who is not Ralph Macchio. Oh, okay. You know, they got real professional actors, but you're right. It's interesting that the uh, Ninja Turtles are not as important. I thought the uh, the guy who did uh, Raphael and Leonardo, I, I thought they were fantastic. Uh Raphael was Nolan North, and uh, Leonardo was uh, James Arnold Taylor. I thought they were very good. Um, I thought the voice acting was excellent in this film. Uh, also, visually, I think gorgeous. Uh, yes. I, I was, you know, by 2007, they were able to really do uh, really good CGI, and there's a lot of rain in this film. I remember in the 90s, fire and water were two things that in video games and animation, and I remember seeing this film and thinking, wow, this might be the first time I've really seen it done this perfectly. There's a fight between uh, Leonardo and Raphael as he is this vigilante, the night walker, night watcher, night walker? Night watcher. Night watcher. I thought that scene was very well done. More dark, again, than you might be expecting from uh, an animated film, but uh, beautiful done yes i agree that the movie was visually stunning there's a great shot early in the movie of michelangelo when he's going into the sewer for the first time or for the first time that we see it in the movie not for the first time that he's ever been there but that shot is amazing he's like riding the skateboard and he's going around the tunnels and it just looks really really fun 
also probably not at all realistic of what the New York City sewers are like, one would imagine. I'm just now finishing the final season of Better Call Saul way, way, way late. But there's a a scene where one of the guys is in the sewer and it's, you know, disgusting. Um, But, you know, in in this movie, it looks really, really fun. That whole scene was just beautiful. Like it was it was really well made. I think that is a perfect scene in this uh, film. It it actually starts with uh, Leonardo has decided to, uh, you know, come back to the team and he comes in on the landing gear of an airplane. He dies off of it. There's an electric guitar uh, score going on in the background. It's just very, very cool. And uh, the final fight, um, I thought it was interesting you know, that they get the Foot Clan kind of working on the side of the, uh, the Ninja Turtles. And uh, strangely, one thing I didn't quite understand was uh, April O'Neil. She has, uh, she's basically a badass ninja in this film. Um, apparently, that's a thing that they had incorporated in some of the other uh, cartoons and comics uh, at the time. I was a little taken back by that, but um, the final fight was... Uh, it was visually uh, uh, pretty fun. My problem with the final fight was that I was still kind of confused by it because they need to collect these 13 monsters. And I thought that the 13th monster was like this little thing that they were trying to get. And then it got away because Leonardo and Raphael started fighting. But then the 13th monster was this big giant sea creature that was running around Manhattan that I guess no one had noticed somehow uh, until April and Casey are able to get the, the monster back to Winter's headquarters. I don't really understand how he's able to do what he's doing, which is to send the monsters back to their dimension. He's like an industrialist, Winters, right? He's got like this big, huge company and April says, oh, he's in everything, stock and medicine and this and that and and shampoo. And then Casey says, I don't use shampoo or body lotion or something. Ha ha ha. But like, how is he doing this? There's a couple of lines about like, oh, well, the stars have a line directly above his tower. That's why he put his tower there. Okay, like, you're probably not supposed to worry about it. The fight looks cool. I was just kind of like, wait, what's happening right now? The tower alignment, it reminded me exactly of uh, Ghostbusters, 1984's Ghostbusters, where they were like, weirdly, this guy built a skyscraper in Manhattan perfectly situated to be the perfect antenna for, like, what was going to happen here. I was fine with it. I kind of thought it was... um, interesting about Winter's character that not just is he immortal, but he's been like the biggest person in the world in every empire. He's been a pharaoh. He's been like a Caesar. Like, that's kind of hard to subtly live forever if you're, you know, the pharaoh. I assume he probably fakes his death every, uh, you know, 30, 40 years or something and starts over. I think the way to do it, you kind of have to alternate it. You can be the most famous guy, you know, like a pharaoh or whatever. Then after you fake your death, maybe for the next lifetime or two, actually, then you're just a regular person. And then you can sort of be in the public eye again. Also easier, you know, in the old days before photos and the Internet and things like that. I think that's the way you get away with it. Probably every third, not every other. I'm going to say every third lifetime you can be in the spotlight. Uh, But James, let me ask you, about this movie as a whole, what do you think? Do you think it stands the test of time? 
Um, it's a beautiful film. I think the score is a lot of fun. I think the voice work is fantastic. I think Kevin Monroe directed a, a, a fine film. The problem I have is that I think this is a weaker overall story. I love the style it went in. I think it's a different direction. There's some stuff I didn't love. Uh, you know, the stuff I mentioned there, mostly storyline stuff. Um, Winters, it turns out, is I, I think he's not a bad guy uh, when you look back at it. He, he doesn't do anything bad. And I think uh, I would have liked to have seen his regret a little more rather than throw away lines here just telling you how much he regrets it. Overall, I think it's it's perfectly fine. I If someone's never seen Ninja Turtles, the only problem with it is that the story itself is not as entertaining. But for someone who is a fan of it, I would absolutely recommend this film. Um, it, it's a fine addition to the lore. Not a great one, not a bad one. Um, I think the film itself stands up. Uh, I just don't think it's great. I think it's, it's, it's sort of like Star Trek Insurrection. That's one of the later Next Generation films, which to me was like, it, it, the story was okay. It wasn't bad. It wasn't good. It was like a... It it was like an episode that happened to be 90 minutes instead of 60 minutes with commercials. And that that's sort of what this one was. It, it was it had funny parts. Uh, I do like some of the throwaway lines uh, standing the test of time. Uh, Winters is a big uh, conglomerate. This film was made in 2007. And they talk about how real estate continues its downward spiral. And like, oh, man, <laughs> that, that would be nice to uh, get in on that. Uh, what do you think, Al? Does TMNT 2007 does stand the test of time? I don't know, man. I mean, I think visually it's great. I agree with you about the story, though. It's just weak. It's got all of these unforced errors. You know, you could have the brothers be fractured and fighting without this, like, stupid reason of Splinter sent him thousands of miles away to be a better leader what? That doesn't make any goddamn sense. And Winters is immortal and now he wants to die. Okay, I understand that. But so he's willing to unleash 13 beasts in Manhattan and let them destroy the city and cause countless death and destruction. And he hires the Foot Clan to to go after them? Why doesn't he go after them? He's immortal. If he's such a good guy and he wants to end his life in a noble way, shouldn't he go after the monsters? He brings his stone brothers back to life somehow, but they're just kind of like standing around and sometimes they help the Foot Clan. Well, if they can do it because they're immortal, then why does he need the Foot Clan at all? It's all just like really poorly constructed. It's it's a poorly constructed script. And that really bothered me because all of these things could have been fixed easily, I think. I think you could have written these things in a way that would make sense. I think my biggest problem with the movie is that it doesn't feel like the first movie in a new version of this franchise. It feels like the second movie in a trilogy where there was one that happened before where they fought Shredder and defeated him. And then they kind of set up that Shredder is going to come back in the next one because the leader of the Foot Clan says, oh, we will meet again and we will be fighting next time because someone you know from your past is coming back. And one of the turtles is like, she doesn't mean <gasps> and, you know, she means Shredder, but also if Shredder is alive still, why is she hanging out with Winters doing his dirty work? Shouldn't she be, like, 
with Shredder? If she thinks Shredder might come back, shouldn't she be helping Shredder come back? Like, it just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense at all. If this movie was going to be just a standalone Ninja Turtles story that doesn't have anything to do with Shredder, that doesn't have anything to do with what came before and isn't a setup for another sequel down the road, that's great. I love that. I would be totally into that. But then don't talk about Shredder, who you said that you killed and then that he's going to come back. Don't set up all of these other things. Let it be its own thing. And this movie wants to be its own thing, kind of. It also wants to be a sequel to the first three movies. It also wants to be the first in a new trilogy. And it's just trying to do all of these different things at the same time. And it doesn't work for me. So I'm going to say that it does not stand the test of time. Well, uh, it's interesting that everything you have a problem with this film seems to be the storyline. So had this team been given another opportunity with a better script, you might have been interested in seeing another shot of Kevin Monroe and his team uh, doing a, another movie. You liked the, visually the film they made. You just didn't like the story. Most of this, it seems to be all the problems are plot-wise. That's what matters most to me is is story. And yeah, the visuals are great. And yeah, the voice acting is great and, and all that stuff. And yes, maybe these people could have made a better Ninja Turtles movie. Sure. But this one that I just watched, no, it's just not very good. Okay. Um, I'm looking forward to it in a couple years, uh, I guess 2029. I'm looking forward to talking about 2014's uh, Tangent Ninja Turtles. I saw that exactly once. I don't remember a single thing about it, except I remember the one time I saw it thinking that was better than I thought it was going to be. And I did not see the 2016 sequel to that that killed that franchise. And that one is not directed by Michael Bay, but he produced it? That's correct. He, he was involved in that in that uh, film. Yeah, not interested. No, thanks. I, I can't believe you won't touch a film that has been touched by Michael Bay. It's not like one of these principled, like, Michael Bay has been canceled, or Michael Bay is a horrible person. Michael Bay has been canceled. By me. <laughs> For the crime of what? Pearl Harbor. <laughs> Guilty. <laughs> Um, I am interested in seeing the new one. Eli uh, said he wants to see it. I don't know if we'll see it in the theater, but I'll I'll see Mutant Mayhem. I mean, Seth Rogen, did he write it? He's involved in some way, shape, or form. I like his stuff, so I'm into that movie. Before we wrap things up, I want to uh, read an email that we got from a listener. At the end of these episodes, I always invite people to to write in. And I got this email from a listener named Mark Adams. And here's what he said. He said, love the show, guys. I'm catching up on episodes and was listening to the Dirty Work episode when I realized I struck gold by being one of the few to watch this movie in its two-week theater run in 1998. I went with a church summer group before going back for a lock-in at the church. Being one of the three boys in the group, we were all in our early teens. We chose Dirty Work while the girls and the chaperone went to watch Hope Floats. Our movie had just started when we got to the theater, so we had a ton of time to kill between the conclusion of our movie and the end of Hope Floats. We decided to sneak into Can't Hardly Wait, so I caught about half of that one while standing in the walkway to that theater. Such great Christian fun and life lessons learned from these two movies. Ha 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 ha. So that made me laugh because we talked about those two movies, Can't Hardly Wait and Dirty Work, not Hope Floats. That was not on my radar at all. 
I want to say Sandra Bullock and Harry Connick Jr. Is is, is that true? I have no idea. Uh, I mean, it's, <laughs> sure. I'll say yes, it's true. <laughs> and I could look it up, but I won't bother. Good for you, Mark. I think that's fantastic. Sneaking into uh, a film as a teenager in the 90s, that, that's what I did as well. I think I might have seen Can't Hardly Wait as a triple feature, you know, paying for one ticket. Good times. Good times. And thank you, Mark, for the email the test of time podcast at gmail.com love hearing your stories as they relate to the movies we've talked about or whatever but that's going to do it for us this week next week we are going to be talking about the cable guy starring jim carrey i have not seen that movie in many 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 years i am looking forward to revisiting that one in the meantime, we want to hear from you guys. You can email us like Mark did, the test of time podcast at gmail.com, or you can talk to us on social media. We are at Test of Time Pod on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Threads. We will see you next time, everybody. Cowabunga dudes. Cowabunga dudes. That's what I said. Say something else. Say radical or something. Uh, Leonardo leads, Donatello does machines, Raphael is cool but crude, Michelangelo is a party dude. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Heroes in a Half Shell, Turtle Power.